It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. You're tuned into Christian Questions. Join the conversation now on air or online at ChristianQuestions.com and download our app by searching for Christian Questions Radio. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Henry David Thoreau once said, The price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. Good evening, I'm Rick, and this is Not Your Typical Christian Commentary, as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan, and that different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue. Always done in a politically free zone. Folks, thanks for joining us this evening. This is a call-in format. We are caller-friendly. So let's get started. Jonathan, good evening. What's happening and what are we talking about tonight? Well, Rick, our question for tonight is, is the price of Christianity too high? And our theme text is found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 22. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. So, the question, is the price of Christianity too high? So, what does it mean to be a Christian? Seriously, what's the bottom line, true meaning of following in the footsteps of Jesus? Is being a Christian like an entitlement program? By, by professing Jesus, do we receive protection from evil and deliverance from trials or the healing of our maladies? Do we receive a promise of an abundant and prosperous life just because we accepted Jesus? Or is being a Christian more like a getting whipped into shape work and endurance program where we lose our own will, learn to do without, and have to somehow rejoice in tribulation every day of our difficult lives? Is the price of true Christianity a simple acknowledgement of Jesus being in your life, or is it a sell all that we have and change what we are mentality? What does it cost to be a true Christian? Is it a price that we are willing to pay? And Rick, not everyone is willing to pay that price. It's an individual decision. But the real strange thing is it's not even taught in most churches the concept of following in Jesus' footsteps. And really, that's what we want to talk about tonight. We want to talk about what's not talked about in terms of being a Christian. We want to talk about sort of the underbelly of being a Christian that you look at and you say, oh, really? That's part of it too? And, and you're exactly right. It's not the kind of thing that's made popular because if you make it popular, you lose your popularity. <laughs> so, so we're going to go there and we're going to actually begin. Uh, we're going to go to a series of uh, sound bites this evening from a, a, a YouTube video uh, called Why Does the Gate the Emerging New Christianity? And it begins to reveal, this, this uh, video we're going to take apart and, and, and use pieces of, begins to reveal a lot of what happens within the Christian world, and Jonathan, it fits exactly what you just described, that is very, very different from what Christianity actually began and started out as. So let's just take a listen to begin and sort of set some footing for us as we get started. We have a very clever adversary who knows how to redefine and reinvent the Christian faith 
And that's what we're watching happen right before our very eyes. In the world religions, there's always been this, uh, this fascination with the mystical. And uh, it's, it's kind of a hallmark of what they believed. Now, we have that all the way back within Christianity through the Gnostics and then through the, the Desert Fathers and, and the Middle Ages and, and uh, a lot of the mysticism that came through Catholicism. But those things were kind of more out on the margins. Uh, they were only in, in particular groups of people within denominations. What we're finding now is that that is hitting the mainstream of Christianity. Barbara Marks Hubbard, probably the, almost the, the matriarch of today's contemporary New Age movement, has a book called Emergence, The Shift from Ego to Essence, Ten Steps to the Universal Human. And so when you, when you hear all of that, it, and of course the music in the background gives you that sense of mystical... Uh, mystery that is so uh, enticing. And, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, is Christianity supposed to be that mystical, enticing experience, or is it something very, very different than that? That's really what we want to focus on uh, this evening, folks, as we, as we begin to dissect this particular question. So to begin with, let's look at this question through the eyes of Jesus' own 12 apostles. The context of our theme verse, and Jonathan, you read the verse from Matthew 20, 22. Right. The context of that theme verse takes place just weeks before Jesus' death. The miracles have all been performed. The teachings have been given, and Lazarus was recently raised from the dead. Now, the raising of Lazarus had dramatically, dramatically accelerated the, uh, the Pharisees' desire to trap and destroy Jesus. Uh, the account we're using in Matthew 20, 20 to 28 is actually also found in Mark 10, 35 to 45. But, but Jonathan, before we get into the scripture, just one quick point. The, the raising of Lazarus really changed everything and accelerated everything. It did, and not only were they looking to kill Jesus, but they also were looking to kill Lazarus right. at the same time. Because you've got to get rid of the evidence. you got it. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. When you think about the raising of Jairus' daughter, I mean, Jairus' daughter was raised, she had just died. So you could, you could rationalize your way out of that one. Then there was the raising of the widow of Nain's son. And remember, it was in the funeral procession. That's right. And again, you might be able to try to rationalize your way out of that one. Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. He began to decompose. You could not rationalize anything about that. And so they went full bore to say, got to get rid of him. Got to get rid of them. Got to get rid of them now. So it's in this context that with the accelerated uh, uh, um, focus of the Pharisees that we are dealing with looking at Jesus, looking at his followers, and looking at the cost, the true cost of discipleship. So this is Matthew 20, uh, verses uh, 20 to 23 for right now. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Now that's a question. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and actually it's not even really, really a question. I mean, Jesus asks her a question, What do you want? And she tells Jesus, not in the form of a question, she doesn't say, could you please do this? She says, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. So, now you're nodding your head saying, what a question. <laughs> yeah, I, I was yeah, like, yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, so, 
first of all, there's really no thought for what that might cost. There's no thinking, no focus on, well, gee, is there some kind of trade-off that's going to have to happen to get on his right hand and on his left? There, there's, there's no thought of that. Um, so you, you wonder, what would have asked, what would have provoked such a, such a request? And by your mother, no less. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, Jonathan, it's like me, you know, going to my boss when I, when I worked for someone and had a boss and, you know, wanting, wanting a raise and asking my mother to ask my boss if I could have a raise. I mean, <laughs> it just doesn't feel right. You know what I'm saying? You're right. Oh, I, I hear you. <laughs> so uh, how did they get to the point of asking this particular question? Let's go back a few verses and see what was happening just before uh, that particular request was made. So let's go back to Matthew 20, verses 17 uh, to 19. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he told the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, and scourged, and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Okay, so we're going to detail this particular scripture in the next segment, but Jonathan, this is a revealment of pain and suffering. Oh, it is, Rick. So you think, why would they ask a question to be elevated to Jesus' right hand and Jesus' left hand if it's in the context of pain and suffering? Because, you know, it, it doesn't, the two things don't seem to add up together. Did the apostles even listen to what he said? I don't think they understood what he said. I think it went right over their heads. And I'll bet, I'll bet you've had that happen, for instance, maybe when your wife is talking to you. Now, oh, I, I hear everything loud and clear. Oh, right? oh you do? Okay. Talking about. No. Nothing, nothing ever goes right over I'm your head, huh? Kidding. Yeah. <laughs> is Jewel in the room? Can I ask yeah. you to verify? Yes, she is. <laughs> But see, look, that happens to all of us. We are listening for what we're listening for, and oftentimes the things that we need to hear are not the things we may want to hear, and so we're just not listening for them, and we don't actually hear them. And Rick, it's interesting. The women heard it because they reminded the apostles that, remember, he was supposed to be raised right. on the third day? So they heard parts, and, and they missed parts. So what you're saying is women tend to listen better than men, huh? Well, um, maybe. We'll, we'll stick with that. That's a, that's a reasonable assumption at this point in time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, here, here's the thing, Jonathan. As we go through these scriptures and this question of, is the price of Christianity too high? We want to have footstep follower lessons. And there's a lesson here that just pops up that really is important. What, what's the first footstep follower lesson? Well, sometimes we only hear what we want to hear which causes our reactions and responses to be based on something that is less than reality. This is not following. And that is such an important point. We, we hear what we want to hear, and then we'll respond to what it is that we wanted to hear, but that's not really following. Because we're taking pieces of it and we're just saying, okay, this fits with, you know, the direction I'd like to go, so I'm good, but not really. So the, the first lesson in being a footstep follower of Jesus is to really focus on taking your preferences out of your ears. You know, our preferences are like, are like earplugs. We, we have our preferences and it's like a plug in our ear. And then if we're being spoken to, we can't hear it because our preference is blocking 
what's being said. Gotta, you gotta, gotta clean your ears. Get the wax out, you know, get the Q-tips, clean those ears out <laughs> so that your spiritual hearing can be really, really sound. Okay, so, so let's go a little further now. Now, so they ask th- this, this incredible request. Can, can these two sons of mine be one at, at your right hand and the other at your left hand? Now, Jesus knew their hearts and he knew their limitations. He's going to address this immature question with compassion, tact, and a dose of reality. And, and I love that about Jesus. He doesn't look at them and say, what are you, nuts? Right. He didn't put them down. Right. Right. He didn't, That's amazing. He didn't say, you really are just, you just don't understand. Why are you even speaking for your two sons? I mean, he, he didn't, there was nothing like that. And we'll, we'll get to his response in, in a moment, but I want to, I want to address the, the idea of having their mother ask the question. This tells us, first of all, several things. It tells us that uh, the mother, the mother of James and John, were, was, was very much a follower of Jesus, mm-hmm. okay? Had left much of her life behind and was following in his footsteps just like her family. And, and that says something about her. It does. So what you have is a dramatic picture of family loyalty to the cause of Christ, Maybe not a dramatic understanding of the cause of Christ, but you have dramatic family loyalty to the cause of Christ. And that's such a good thing. It is. It's a good thing. And to want to be at his right hand and at his left hand, because they were chosen, they were handpicked as apostles, I don't think they even knew what that meant at this point. But because they were handpicked as apostles, there was something special about them anyway. So why not try to be in the position where you can be as close as possible to the master himself? And when you look at it just from that perspective, it's like, well, shouldn't we all want to be in that kind of a position? It's something to be desired, isn't it? Right. So you have the heart of the matter, and it's a good heart. But it's a really immature question. It's very, very immature. And, and Jesus... His, his, the beginning of his response to this is tactful, but he addresses that immaturity. Uh, we're in, um, where are we? We're in Ma- uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 22. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. All right. Do they even know what he's talking about? Do they know the price? Of following in Jesus' footsteps? Well, you know, he had just told them a few verses before this, remember, that he was going to Jerusalem. He will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and he will be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be scourged and to be crucified. So when Jesus says, are you able to drink of the cup that I'm about to drink of, he's referring back to what he just told them maybe, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes ago, whatever it was. It wasn't that he was thirsty. No, no, no. <laughs> the cup, the experience. Are you able to, to, to ingest the same experiences that I'm going to go through? Well, Rick, without the Holy Spirit, there is limited understanding, isn't there? And it's kind of like you're a child. And look, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And they said we are able. And you know what, the, what does that say? You can say, well, that shows how foolish they were. Or you can say... That shows how loyal they were. I like that. And I really think that's what it was coming from. It was coming from utter loyalty. Look, whatever it is you're going through, we're going to be with you 
Don't you understand? We are with you. I think that's the message to get from them. That's what they wanted to do. That's what they wanted to be. So their response is, yes, we are able, even though they really, really, really didn't understand it. And then Jesus continues with his answer after hearing them say, yes, we're able, even though he knows that they really don't understand what they're talking about. Verse 23 of Matthew 20. And he said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Well, Rick, the plan from the start was to create this church class to follow in Jesus' footsteps. This was God's design. Right, right. But the details aren't to be understood at this time. And and so Jesus was telling them, look, okay, you're asking a very, very high and noble thing. I can't even give you the answer to that. But I can tell you that you're going to have to go through the kinds of experiences that I'm going through. Now, Jesus didn't say that you're going to have to be crucified just like me right next to me. But he said the cup of sorrow, the cup of experience, the cup of trial, the cup of difficulty. He said, yes, you are going to have to go through that particular experience. There's no way around it. And being my apostle means that. So we're taking this immature question and finding the value in, in, in the desire behind the question and trying to understand what it really means to be a true footstep follower of Jesus. So with this, his reality check, in, uh, check answer that, that Jesus just gives, he, he settles the matter. There's no more need for discussion here, okay? He's put it in place. He said, okay, this is the way that it really needs to be, and I've answered your question, and there's really nothing else that you need to to say, talk about, do, or think. Done. Let's move on. Well, do they? This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject is, is the price of Christianity too high? Coming up, what was this cup that Jesus was talking about? And who has to drink it? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today is, Is the Price of Christianity too high. We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL, or you can message us on your app. Christian Questions, a voice of reason in a world that's lost its way. Keep in touch at ChristianQuestions.com. So, Jonathan, we are talking about the cost of truly following Jesus. Not the cost of liking Jesus. You know, it's not a Facebook thing where you can like Jesus and everything's good. I mean, look, it's good to like Jesus, but it's a different thing to follow Jesus. And Jonathan, speaking of Facebook, just really quickly, there's been a lot of very, very, very interesting conversation going on on our Facebook page, Christian Questions Facebook page, so we'd love for you to go there and participate in that, and don't forget to like us on Facebook. Again, it's not like liking Jesus, that's not... (laughs) But but a lot of the conversation, Jonathan, uh, is between believers in Jesus and non-believers, and sometimes it sounds like it gets a little bit harsh, that's okay, no problem with that. But literally, I am taking notes on some of the things that are being said, and we're going to be doing some programs in the very near future to address 
some of the very real questions that have come up to challenge why we believe what we believe. You know, why we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, why we believe that God has a plan, and why we believe God is there. So, interesting, Facebook is, is proving to be a motivation to help us develop future programming, so stay with us for those things. Jonathan, let's go back to why does the gate the emerging new Christianity? And you know, when you say something like the emerging new Christianity, it sounds great. But the whole point of this is to say it's not great, it's deceptive. It's wrong. So we're going to keep adding ingredients to this emerging new Christianity as a warning because these are not the things that Jesus taught us. David Spangler father of the new age called the shaman of the new age has a book called emergence the rebirth of the sacred the god within the book as above so below written by the editors of new age magazine talk about the emergent spirituality and they talk all about contemplative prayer and esoteric christianity emergent spirituality the god within this is definitely off base for what Christianity really, really is. But it's enticing because it's new and it's exciting and it's kind of mystical and kind of mysterious and human nature loves those kinds of things. What's not mystical and mysterious is what Jesus described as the experiences of a true Christian. The cup, remember he said, are you able to drink of the cup that I have to drink of? And they said, we are able. Right. The cup experiences that Jesus had um, and that we could share in. What, what, is, what are those cup experiences? Well, let's go to John 15, verses 18 to 21, and this is the night before his crucifixion. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all of these things you will do, they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So there's a lot of things in this particular verse that I think we need to just take a few moments on. First of all, it talks about if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So even though Jesus is saying, if the world hates you, he's saying, the world's going to hate you. Yeah, absolutely. Because the world hated me first. So he's preparing right. his followers. This is what you're going to find if you're truly following in my footsteps. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of? Part of it was not being looked at with great appreciation from the world because you stand for something different. Do we in our Christianity stand for something different that makes other people maybe uncomfortable because it's a higher standard? All right. It says you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Maybe you were there, but you're no longer part of them. So you're different People generally don't like difference so much. He goes on to say, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So persecution means that you're being pursued. It, it means, you know, it, it, persecution is not a really happy experience because somebody's pursuing you with, with not, not very good intent generally. The cup experience doesn't sound fun, Rick. No, 
No, no, it, it's not. And it's, it's not only not fun, but it re, it's intense, and it requires devotion and discipline and desire to stay focused. And it sees, he says, all these things they do, they will do um, to you for my name's sake, okay? So that's an, another interesting part of this whole process is you're going to have to have these experiences as a result of being a, an actual follower of me. And being a follower of me is not necessarily an easy thing. Jonathan, let's go to the phones. We have Julius from Connecticut on the line. Good evening, Julius, and welcome to Christian Questions. Thank you, Rick. Good evening to you and Jonathan. Thank you. And the whole team. Uh, yeah, I, I, do you recall the, the late Mahatma Gandhi, yes. the Indian leader? Yes. One independence for Indian from England years ago. I'm not sure of his religion. Was he a Hindu or Buddha? I'm not sure. But I'm fascinated by, uh, by the seven mortal sins that he observed in the world. He listed seven mortal sins. And uh, I'm only going to uh, uh, focus on just one of them. I'll give you a couple. Uh, and uh, one in particular, uh, one fascinating one was uh, uh, seven, one of the sins that he listed in the world. Is politics without principle? How how uh, uh, relevant that is in our day. And then one was pleasure without conscience. But uh, the one that I want to share with you, relevant to uh, your topic tonight, uh, just this one. Uh, he said uh, one of them is uh, worship. That is worship without sacrifice. Hmm. Thank you and God bless. Thank you, Julius. We appreciate your call. You know, and that's such Have a, a good night. Good night. That, that's such a great, a great addition to our conversation. The idea of worship without sacrifice. It, you know, our worship is going to cost us something. If we are truly following after Jesus and following in his footsteps, it will cost you. And you might not like the fact that it costs you something, but that's part of the contract of being a true follower of Christ. Now, it's interesting, because in, in the first segment, Jonathan, Jesus had revealed that he was going to be crucified to, the, to the, his apostles. Yeah, but they didn't hear it. They right. didn't get it. But he had revealed he was going to be crucified actually three different times. And we're going to touch on these three accounts. That was the last of the three times. These three accounts give us clues as to the price he would pay, and therefore the price that we would be subject to as well. Now, in the first account of his revealing his crucifixion, he puts the coming events of the crucifixion into the hands of the Pharisees and the chief priests. Also, the first one was after the revealing by Peter that Jesus himself is Messiah. And it's kind of as if, as if to say, look, yes, you've revealed something very, very special, and this is what it's going to cost, as a matter of fact. So let's go to that first revealing of Jesus' crucifixion to his followers, and that's in Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. All right, so with that, Jesus reveals something, and Peter gets it. I mean, this one didn't go over Peter's head, because Peter argues with Jesus afterwards. 
and it's just like Peter to argue with Jesus, um, because he's got something in his heart and something in his mind, something very, very specific. And he says, this can't happen to you. And, and Jesus says, no, look, it has to happen to me. It has to. Can you imagine how Peter must have felt when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan? Yeah, like, what? <laughs> I guess I should You're <laughs> out of harmony with God's will. Yeah, I, you know, if you, if you could have a do-over. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the one. <laughs> the apostle would have wanted a do-over right there. But yeah. see, here's the thing. He, he says that, you know, you, he's going to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests. So he's drawing attention to the fact that those leaders of their own spirituality would be against him. We, too, could be subject to ridicule and persecution from the religious powers that be. Of our day. Right. That's one of the messages of what it takes to follow after Jesus. See, following means most likely being on the outs with established thought. And that may be hard for a lot of us to swallow because in, in our day, what we have is a gospel of abundance. You know, the, 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 the idea that the gospel is going to bring you all kinds of good stuff, all kinds of good feelings, all kinds of good security. Now, don't get me wrong. The gospel can bring you good feeling and it can bring you security. But those things come not via UPS, not things. They come via experiences and trial and persecution and character growth and development. Those things don't come with ease. They come as a result. Peace in Christ comes as a result of being tried in Christ. And also, Rick, the gospel of, of righteousness and a social gospel um, is also being preached in many, many churches. And then if someone hears, well, wait a minute, I heard that the cup of suffering, that if we're to follow in Jesus' footsteps, here's what, what we should be going through. But that's not what we're taught. Right. So now all of a sudden it's you against us. That's not what we're taught. You're teaching something foreign to us. Right. So that, again, will bring persecution. Right. And, but, but the thing is, who are you going to believe? And the answer needs to be, I'm going to believe what's written in the book. The book. We'd love to talk to you right now. We're live. Call us at 866-985-FOR-ALL. That's 866-985-4255. Or leave us a comment at ChristianQuestions.com. All right. So we went over that first experience where Jesus describes his crucifixion, and he focuses on the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. The second revealing of his crucifixion focuses on the hands of men, the Gentiles. It was after Jesus had released the boy from demon possession, and a particular possession that was really, really very difficult, much more difficult than others. And perhaps this was again a reminder of the cost of being the chosen one. So this we find in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Hey, Rick. Yeah. Why would they be afraid to ask him? They were so close to Jesus. You know, they're afraid because he says something that sounds completely contrary to the good that he just did. 
I mean, he, he, he took this demon-possessed boy and he miraculously made him whole again. In a very, it was a very difficult situation. And so he's doing this, these great things and, then they're, and they're afraid to ask him because it's contrary to the greatness. And they're saying, he couldn't have meant that. I, I, I don't want to bring it up. I mean, I'm going to look foolish if I bring it up asking him because it sounds completely opposite of what he's just showing us. He's so powerful. He's so powerful. How could this possibly happen? Exactly. So, exactly. so you know, you're right. They're, they're, not, they're not seeing it. But see, what he's saying here, he, again, he's focusing on, in this instance of revealing the crucifixion, he's focusing on the hands of men, the hands of Gentiles. We, too, could be subject to ridicule and persecution from the civil powers that be. So in the first revealing, it was about the religious powers that be and being contrary. In the second one, it's the civil powers that be, following means, being in, contradict in a contradictory state to the established hierarchies throughout our social world. And that's a tough pill to swallow sometimes. Oh, it is. You're right. Now, the third account of his revealing his uh, crucifixion was the most detailed and dramatic, and this is the one we're going over now, was after the raising of Lazarus. And we're going to read the Luke 18, 31 to 34 rendering because it's actually more detailed than the Matthew rendering that we read in the, in the first segment. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spat upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So again, you see that clear-cut, absolute evidence that he spelled it out. And when you read this verse over and over again, he really spells it out. He does, in detail. And, but it says they didn't understand it. It was hidden from them. And they didn't comprehend. Because it was probably just too much of the th kinds of things that they weren't ready or wanting to hear. I mean, who wants to hear that? Nobody. About the man who just raised Lazarus from the dead, who had been dead in the grave for four days. Who wants to hear that? You're right, nobody. And so... The, 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 the cost of following Jesus, I mean, we too could be subject to the necessary and prophetic trials needed to fulfill God's plan. Because he's saying, I'm going to do this, all things which are written throughout the prophets about the Son of Man, they have to come true. So Jesus was able to tell them what was going to happen because he knew the prophecies of what was going to happen. So following Jesus means, Jonathan, being subject to whatever is necessary to fulfill God's stated plan. You know, persecution and all of those things are part of the prophecies of Scripture that talk about the followers of Christ. And that's part of the cup that Jesus right. was talking about. Right. Are we willing, are we able to drink that cup, to follow in his footsteps? So footstep follower lesson number two is what? Jesus lets us know what is required to follow in his footsteps and the fact that they are his footsteps obviously tells us that he has already been down the path. And see, that's, to me, that's great encouragement. The fact that he's already been down this path, the fact that there is nothing new under the sun here. Jesus has paved the way for us. He's paved the way. He's put it in perspective. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject is, is the price of Christianity too high? Coming up, how would you react if some of your fellow Christians 
sought the highest positions in the kingdom. <laughs> That's next. <laughs> I want it. <laughs> listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today's episode is, Is the Price of Christianity Too High? We're live Monday evenings from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Christian Questions, a weekly habit that's good for you. Thanks for tuning us in every Monday evening. Join our conversation any day and time at ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so Jonathan, before we continue the, the, the conversation proper, let's go back to those sound bites from White is the Gate, the Emerging New Christianity, and get more of a sense of the New Age influence that's working, that has worked its way into a lot of Christianity, and frankly, it messes the whole thing up. Because it takes something that is logical and sequential and scriptural and makes it into something that's mystical and that is very, very attractive to the average person. So let's, let's listen. Thomas Keating is a Trappist monk who in the 60s realized that there was a tremendous influence of Eastern mysticism with the young people. He discovered that these practices by one of the early mystics and Roman Catholic contemplatives was virtually identical in substance and practice to the techniques they've been learning from Zen masters. Thomas Keating popularized the movement called centering where you take a single word and begin using that as a mantra to focus and center your mind and your spirit through which you can open up and commune with the divine. And actually Thomas Keating has acknowledged that that practice of contemplative meditation, even in its Christianized version, is identical to the Eastern meditation and will also, like the Eastern meditation, open up the serpent power, the kundalini demonic force, to rise up even in devoted young Catholics practicing these occult techniques. I don't know, Jonathan, none of that sounds good to me. That's scary. It is. It is scary. And, and it takes something that doesn't belong within the realm of Christianity, and it plants it right in the middle. And then what you have is a massive contradiction. And that's not how to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Well, to get a woman's perspective, we have invited our very own Kathy from the CQ team to share on tonight's topic. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Tonight, I was thinking about this, and... Um, there was an article in one of my favorite Christian books by one of my favorite Christian authors. It's called Pilgrim Echoes, and it's by Benjamin Barton, and the article is called Moses. And it's taken from Exodus 2, verses 1 to 10. We learn there the story of Moses' beginning. Moses was born with the curse of death over him. For Pharaoh had ordered all Hebrew male babies to be put to death. Well, that was because the Israelites were too large in number and the Egyptians were worried about rebellion, right? That's right. And we, too, are under the death penalty. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, it says, All in Adam die. So, Kathy, what you're bringing out here is we're all under this penalty of death. Um, the picture of Moses and the Adamic curse is symbolic for the Christian. 
Yes, and you can see it in in the beginning when Moses' mother, she started off clinging to him, and she tried to hide him and prolong his life as long as, as possible before he was taken from her. But she willingly gave him up, not knowing what would happen. Kathy, so what happened, and how does it relate to us as Christians? Well, Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in a basket in the river, and Pharaoh's daughter hired Moses' mother to nurse and care for Moses. So she got him back and was paid to take care of her own son. But he no longer belonged to her. He belonged to the royal palace, who told her how to care for him and who provided protection, royal protection, for him. The second half of 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, Even so, in Christ, shall all be made alive. In Matthew 11:28-29, Jesus invites us to come to him now, and Paul tells us more in Romans 12:1 about presenting ourselves in sacrifice. We are given the opportunity to surrender our lives before they are taken from us in death. Oh, like Moses' mother gave up Moses, we are to give up our lives. That's the connection. Yes. And because we trust God, we give him our entire selves, and he gives it back to us to use as he directs. Well, where do we get our directions? (laughs) From the Bible. (laughs) It contains all the answers for life written by the creator of the universe who has been around for forever, and he knows everything. Who better to take direction from? In 2 Timothy 3.16, it tells us that all scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. It even tells us what to think in Philippians 4.8 and even what to eat and drink in Corinthians 10.31. Do all to the glory of God. How else does he direct us? Well, like Moses, we are now under divine protection. And nothing can happen to us without God's permission. So we can firmly trust him, as it says in Romans 8, 28. And the wages that he gives to us are better hopes than the world has, joy and peace that can't be taken away, greater happiness to our hearts. And God never does less than he promises. He promised to give us bread and water. But just look at all the extras that he throws in. I think there's chocolate in there. (laughs) Now you got my attention. (laughs) Whether your day brings trial or joy, God will send you exactly what you need to get through it. Deuteronomy 33.25 As your days, so shall be your strength. So, Kathy, the picture of Moses' mother giving up her son and him being given back to her is like us giving up our will to do God's will, and everything we have he returns back to us to use in his service. This is the cost of discipleship. Kathy, what an awesome picture of the price of Christianity. Thank you for sharing this evening. Thank you for having me. And Kathy, thanks for the chocolate reference there. That was great. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, Jonathan, it, it's interesting because what you're describing is, and I think you may have mentioned the word. I, I wasn't sure, wasn't sure if Kathy actually said the word, but talking about stewardship. 
being stewards over over yourself and you don't own yourself. I mean, God's supposed to tell you what to think. I mean, what's up with that? He's supposed to tell you, you know, how to act. What's up with that? Can't you decide? No. No, not if you're a true Christian. That, that's a great example, a great picture of Moses and, and, and Moses' mother as the, the giving up and the no longer owning, no longer having a say over um, the, the thoughts of, of your own heart and mind. That's powerful. So, Kathy, thanks so much for that. Lots of scriptures, lots to think about there. Let's go back to Matthew 20, verses 24 to 28, because remember... The question was asked by, the, by James and John's mother, you know, hey, can my son sit at your right hand and your left? And Jesus says, well, no, they can't. And so what's the reaction of the other ten? And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus turns to the ten and basically says, guys, cool it. It's okay. Everything's fine. He allays the angst that they're feeling by further, further revealing what true discipleship looks like. And he says, look, it's not what any of you think it is. It's not like any of that. It's about service. It's about humility. It's about being less than, and that's how you end up more than. You have to be less than. And you're not, you don't try to be less than so you can be more than. See, that, that's one of the key little things. You say, okay. So I want to be really, really, really great. So I'm going to have to act like I'm less than everybody else. (laughs) That's wrong because that's the heart that's gone the wrong direction. It is being. It's actually being and living as the one who serves. And if you want an example of that, you look at how Jesus actually lived his every day. There's no better example than that. Jesus would hammer home his clarity on discipleship again and again, and he does it again the night before his crucifixion in John 13, 12 to 17. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Okay, knowing is great, doing is better. So again, Jesus puts humility and servitude on display. And it's a very, very, very obvious obvious lesson. You can't get away from the power of this lesson. So he, he goes further with this lesson that night. Let's go to Luke twenty-two twenty-one to 30. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man whom he has betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So, so let, let's follow along with this, Jonathan, because first you have him showing them utter and deep humility. And then he, and it's a very obvious physical lesson. He washed their feet. He stu- stooped below everyone else. 
in his service to them and used it as an object lesson, saying, you've got to be like this. And the next thing you know, the next thing you know is they've got this, this ex- experience where uh, now he's saying, but somebody's going to betray me. Somebody is going to betray me. So what are you going to do with that? So they have the, they, they, they're going to be looking to figure out, okay, what's really happening here? Now, before we go back to those scriptures, Jonathan, let's get to the phones. We've got Lonnie from Milwaukee on the line. Good evening, Lonnie, and welcome to Christian Questions. Hey, Rick and Jonathan. How are you doing tonight? Doing well. How are you? Great. I'm doing great. Um, just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about, um, we were talking about suffering earlier. Yes. And there's a quote from uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning yeah. um, that I really, really appreciate. And he writes, Dostoevsky once wrote, there is one thing that I dread, not being worthy of my suffering. And, and then uh, Viktor Frankl went on to write, if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. And the thought that I just had as I was listening to the program tonight was as Christians, we're told in the Bible that our, um, our sufferings are common to what all of man experiences. But I think for us as Christians, it comes down to really understanding what kinds of opportunities there are to bear fruit from those experiences. And I think that's really um, part of taking up the cup and, and understanding what Jesus is asking us to do is we can go through sufferings and they can destroy us or we can really grow from them and learn from them. And I think that's really an important thing that we need to look for in any experience that we go through as a Christian. Lonnie, very well said. You know, the, the idea of suffering is something that for a Christian, we really shouldn't just be focused on just grinning and bearing it, but we should be focused on bearing and learning from it. And and again, it helps to put us in Jesus' footsteps. Lonnie, thanks so much for your thoughts. We really appreciate it tonight. Thank you so much, and thank you for all your work on the program. It's really appreciated. Not a problem. Lord bless you. Take you know, care. What what great uh, great uh, comments there from from Lonnie, and and you know the quote from Vic, Victor Frankl: "Being worthy of our sufferings." I mean, look, we're going to be. What do you do with them? Are you worthy of? Think about it. Are you worthy of the attention that God gives to your life experiences and that produces suffering so you can rise up and, and grow something from them? I mean, that's really what, what she was saying. Thank you, Lonnie, once again for that. So, so, so Jonathan, getting back to Luke 22, uh, 21 to 30, remember, you know, Jesus just reveals, okay, uh, there's going to be um, somebody who's going to betray me. So they ask, well, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? What happens after that? Verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. So wait a minute. What happened? You have the humility of the washing of the feet. You have the, the revealing of a betrayer and the worry about who is it, who is it. And now they're talking about who's going to be greatest. What happened? And what happened, Jonathan, is human nature. And that's why we have to be so focused on seeing what the will of God really, really, truly is. So Jesus focuses them again. This is Luke twenty-two, twenty-five to 30. The kings and the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So in this particular answer, Jonathan, he gives them hope of some kind of greatness, but not before telling them that you have to be servants. That's right, and give from the heart. Right. There's value in that service. Right, and, and, and there's value in the humility with which you give. It's not just giving, oh, because I got to. Why, you know, why, why do you have to do that? Because dad said so. No, 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 that's, that's not it. It's that's because, duty love. Right, this is much deeper, much stronger, much more powerful than that. It's walking in the footsteps of Jesus kind of love. Humility and servitude would eventually sink in, but would always, we would always need to be reminded of it. First Peter 5, 6-9, before we close this hour. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So, it's interesting. Be humbled under the mighty hand of God. What is it going to take to humble me? What kind of experiences do I have to have to actually be humbled by them, to, to get off of my own high horse? It's being humbled not by my own judgments and thoughts and actions, but it's the mighty hand of God. And oftentimes that humbling comes through suffering. So what's our footstep follower lesson number three before we close this hour? How easily we forget the powerful lessons of following. The need for humility is much easier to see in someone else, yet it is the very basis of the cost of following Jesus. See, there's something very special about that because it's really easy to look around and look at that other brother or sister or that other person that goes to church with you, you know, on, on Sunday and say, boy could they use a dose of humility? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I mean, just look at the way they're acting over there. If they would only get a little bit of humility in their lives, then maybe they could finally grow. Folks, if we keep doing that, all we're doing is we're missing the lesson. We're missing the opportunity. We're missing the footsteps. It's like, you know, if there's footsteps in the snow and there's two sets, you choose the set you're going to follow. And if they're Jesus' footsteps, they're going to be hard to follow. They're going to be difficult. The snow's going to be deep but we can overcome by the grace of God. In the second hour, we're going to continue to develop the thoughts behind what it really takes to be an absolute, real, dedicated, true follower of Christ and not just a fake follower or not just a fan who loves to to look at Jesus and wave and wave your hands and all that. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. But till then, is the price of Christianity too high? We'll be back real soon. Think about it. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. You're tuned into Christian Questions. Join the conversation now on air or online at ChristianQuestions.com and download our app by searching for Christian Questions Radio. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Vince Lombardi once said, The price of success is hard work, dedication to the job at hand, and the determination that whether we win or lose, we have applied the best of ourselves 
to the task at hand. Good evening. Welcome back. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And Jonathan, the subject on the table this evening may not be the most comfortable, but it's certainly a very important one. It really is, Rick. And the question is, is the price of Christianity too high? And our theme text is found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 22. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. And of course, uh, we went over in the first hour uh, the, the, the foolishness of that particular question and the lack of understanding. But we also went over the compassion and tact with which Jesus answered them to teach them a much higher lesson. Yeah, I love that about him. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the beautiful thing is you can see by the lives of the apostles that the lessons really did stick. It's not like they were just surface lessons. They really stuck and they changed their lives. So, Jonathan, there were three specific footstep follower lessons that we drew from the first hour. Let's just do a quick review of them. Footstep follower lesson number one is what? Sometimes we only hear what we want to hear, which causes our reactions and responses to be based on something that is less than reality. This is not following. All right. Hearing just what you want to hear and shutting out the rest is not the way to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Footstop, foot, footstop, right? Footstep follower, a footstop. I got to wonder what that might be. <laughs> footstep follower lesson number two is what? Jesus lets us know what is required to follow in his footsteps. And the fact that they are his footsteps obviously tells us that he has already been down the path. And, and I don't know about you, but that to me is one of the most comforting thoughts. You're walking a path that is not new ground. It's not new territory. It's not only been traversed by Jesus, but by many, many, many other followers of his who stuck very closely to him. And Rick, he shines the light on that path to follow. He is that light. Right. Absolutely. And, and so we've got the path. We've got the light. We've got the steps. All we have to do is do our work. What's the footstep follower lesson number three? How easily we forget the powerful lesson of following. The need for humility is much easier to see in someone else, yet it is the very basis of the cost of following Jesus. So humility is, one of those, is, is a core value in being a footstep follower of Jesus. And Rick, I love the def definition you always give us of humility, that it's an accurate assessment of oneself. So you accurately see your talents and abilities and use them. It, and humility is not being a doormat uh, and woe is me kind of concept. Right. Because you'll get nowhere with that, that attitude. Right. Humility is not saying, oh, I'm good for nothing. Yeah. Humility is actually saying, I'm good for what God has blessed me to be good for. Let me use that. Let me do that with the idea of glorifying God by doing it. That's yes. what real true humility is. And again, we have to see humility for ourselves. Humility for others, you know what? They'll figure it out. It's not my job to point out where you need to be humble. It's not your job to point out where I need to be humble. It's our job to be the example 
and then let that humility flow out of us. So those were the three footstep follower lessons from the first hour. We've been going back to a YouTube video, Wide is the Gate, the Emerging New Christianity, and it's exposing a lot of the mystical, mysterious, very attractive aspects that have permeated into much of the Christian world today and that are very dangerous, frankly, for those of us who are trying to follow Christ by following what's written in the book. So let's go back to that uh, and see what's next on the list of things to be really, really cautious of. One thing that, that permeates all throughout those different belief systems is a movement towards an experience-based kind of Christianity. They want something that is different from what they can just hold in their hands or read in, a, in the Bible. They want something that is sensual. We are being told, not only by the New Age New Spirituality, but by many who are now in leadership, that we need to have spiritual experiences for an authentic faith. As far as Christianity is concerned, the corruption is coming into the church from outside. We're embracing those things that God speaks nothing of in Scripture unless he's speaking against it. And a lot of Christian leaders are really devaluing the Bible. And that's really very common in the, in the merging, emerging spirituality church. So this idea of experience-based faith is really saying an emotion-based faith. You've got to feel your Christianity to really know that you have it. And that's not necessarily true at all. It, Christianity is not a feeling, Rick, no, for sure. No, no it, is a committed, it is a committed focus of life that we have to fulfill through very, very difficult times sometimes. And sometimes you don't feel like it, but that doesn't mean you don't do it. To clarify what uh, Julius talked about, Gandhi was a Hindu, um, just to oh, clarify okay. for us. <laughs> yeah, he, he was, he was uh, sort of wondering about that part. But yeah. uh, very good quotes from Julius about uh, Gandhi and, and the principles of living a life, you know, uh, belief without sacrifice is not a good thing. You've got to be willing to, to give up for the sake of what it is you believe. So, so that's what we're really focusing on here. Jesus described what it takes to follow him in a variety of ways. Now, we talked about drinking the cup that he was to drink of. We talked about in the first hour. We've already looked at that. And another way that Jesus described following him was very simple. It was self-denial and everything that goes with that. And, and there were some very pointed statements that Jesus made about that. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone wants to become my follower... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You know, that's about as simple a statement as you can make. If you want I, to... I love bullet points. That's easy to understand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Deny thyself, take up thy cross, follow me. Three things. Okay. Three points. We're going to go through them uh, during the rest of this program. We're going to go through those three points and, and figure out what they mean and how do I apply it to me. How do I apply denying myself to me? We welcome all comments or questions, even if you disagree with us. Give us a call. We're live at 866-985-4ALL. That's 866-985-4255. All right. So step one, deny yourself that. And why is it step one? Because Jesus said it first. Okay. He said it. That's first. You deny yourself. What does the word deny actually mean? Well, Rick, it means to deny utterly. It, uh, that is disown, abstain. All right. So to deny utterly, 
Uh, so deny means deny. You know, when when you you know when in basketball, when somebody's going to take a shot and the other guy blocks a shot, he's denied, and it's <laughs> such a dramatic thing. Denied, you know. <laughs> but you know, we can deny the wrong things. Oh, you're right. And here's an example of that. Let's look at Luke chapter 22, verse 34. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. That's the same word. When Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The exact same word is used by Jesus to describe what Peter was going to do. And he described Peter's denial of him as not just a one-time experience, but it was going to be repeated three separate times. And, 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 you know, Jonathan, we look at that and we think, how could he do that? How could he possibly have, have gotten to a point where he, he would deny knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times in the same evening? And, you know, you say, I don't understand. But the answer is, He's human. He's human. And what happens is with our faith, our faith gets surrounded by life's experiences. And sometimes when life's experiences grow big and powerful and menacing and intimidating, we cave in. And Peter was an example of that. And what can happen is we end up denying that which we most love. And Rick... Thank God of, for Jesus and his mercy that helped Peter get out from that, that rock of denial to lift him up and to get him on the path again. And, and, uh, because coming back from that is almost impossible. Yeah. Well, you're right. It, it is such a dramatic denial. And you, you deny him. And the scripture says after the third time, he went out and wept bitterly. And I can only imagine the, the, the horror and the broken heart, heartedness that he would have had. And then Jesus is taken off and he's tortured and he's crucified and now he's dead. And so your last interchange about Jesus was what? Denying you knew him. Heartbreaking. It is. But you're right. Jesus brought him back with grace, with love, with care, with tact, and with confidence. He gave him responsibility as he brought him back. And, and you're right. He saved Peter's life by bringing him back in Absolutely. such a way. So the point is, what are we going to deny? Are we going to deny ourselves or are we going to deny the wrong things, the things that we actually profess to have such love for? Self-denial put to the test. To love and serve is one thing. To sacrifice and actually follow Jesus is another. So next scripture is going to be Mark 10, 17 to 23. But again, this is, a, this is a comparison of loving and serving, which is all good. We all like that. But sacrificing and following are different. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, 
I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now, doesn't that kind of remind you of a little bit of the conversation we were talking about in the first hour between Jesus and his disciples? Are you able to drink the cup that I, I am able to I am going to drink? It does sound up? familiar, doesn't it? It's the same kind of thing. He tells them something, and they say, yeah, we can do that. And this, this rich young man says, well, look, I've been doing that. I've been doing that. And look, he's sincere. And he had probably lived a very righteous life. And he had probably done many, many, many things right according to the Jewish law, just as he was supposed to. And Jesus saw that. This young man loved God. You could tell. He did. And you're right. It, he wore that love on the outside. And that's incredibly valuable. He served God. And you could tell. He wore that service on the outside. And he lived honorably. And you could tell because that's the way he came across. The question is, is that enough to follow Jesus? So what happens? What's Jesus' response? Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him... Uh, okay, okay before, before you go further, I just, just, we just got to stop right there. Because again, this parallels so much of what we talked about in the first hour. When they said, yes, we're able to drink of the cup... Jesus didn't say, oh, you foolish person, you have no idea what you're saying. He took the, 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 the desire that they expressed and he built upon it. And here Jesus does the same thing. He sees this young man's desire to honor God and love God and to follow Jesus. And, he's, and he loves him for it. But he's now going to tell him, just like in the first hour where he told the disciples, he's now going to tell him the truth. One thing you lack? Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now that was a, a, a tall, tall order for such a young man. But Jesus told him, for you, this is what it's going to take, and what happens. But at these words, he was saddened. He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to the disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And we know that's the heavenly reward. Right, right. So he's talking about the, the ability to really truly follow him. And Jesus' response here is, okay, you are showing me a heart for God. You are showing me love, respect, and honor for God and his will, and I'm going to show you the next step. All of those things are good. All of those things are wonderful. But if you want to follow me, Jesus, there's something that's much more required. That's the price of Christianity. And Rick, giving everything up, the, that re reminds me of Kathy's comments earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Giving, becoming a steward of your own life. So I no longer own my life, but I own the responsibility of managing my life for the purpose of honoring and glorifying God by walking in the footsteps of Jesus and no longer in my own path. That's a long sentence with a lot in it. <laughs> for sure. Put that in the rewind and let's break it down because there's a lot to that. And that's the lesson that was given to this rich young ruler. See, the truest test of discipleship is that of loyalty. And it's not just loyalty to say, yes, I, I, I love you and, and, and I'm, I'm willing to show it. It's loyalty 
at any cost. What do we hold closest to our hearts? What are we willing to leave behind for the sake of the footsteps of Jesus? See, Jonathan, those are two really important question, questions. What's closest to my heart? And folks, if you decide to, to ask yourself the question, am I truly a footstep follower of Jesus? That's one of the questions you have to ask yourself. And we have to take that, and this is one of those mirror questions. What is closest to my heart? Am I willing to take whatever it is and replace it with loyalty to the very footsteps of Jesus, even if those footsteps lead me away from the things that I really, really love and enjoy? Now, let me let me clarify that. You know, if you're married, it doesn't mean it's going to walk you away from your marriage or something like that. Let's not be silly here. You know, if you have responsibilities to, to raise your family, following Jesus doesn't mean you don't raise your family, for goodness sakes. What it means is you take your life and you focus it on glorifying God through the footsteps of Jesus. So, so what's our footstep follower lesson number four here? Can You can't hear me? Okay. Footstep. No, no, you froze up a little bit. Oh, okay, footstep follower lesson number four. Self-denial is the first of the two essential qualities needed to walk in Jesus' footsteps, for it personalizes the meaning of not my will, but thy will be done. So self-denial is a critically important part of the idea of following Jesus literally in his footsteps and changing our lives. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject is, Is the Price of Christianity Too High? Coming up, we've looked at self-denial. What does it mean to take up your cross? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today's episode is, Is the Price of Christianity Too High? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. And if you'd like to write to us, you can write us at Christian Questions, P.O. Box 1837, New London, Connecticut, 06320. All right, so the subject on the table is the price of Christianity. And we've really been looking at the words of Jesus, the example of Jesus, and the idea that following in his footsteps is a very difficult task. And it's a task that requires uh, focus every day. And, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, there's, there's, no, there's no letting up with that self-denial. Because if you're going to deny yourself, you think yourself is going to go away because you deny yourself? <laughs> it's like, I've denied myself, so he's gone now. No, he's not. <laughs> you got to fight that guy. That's right. That guy is, gonna, is right there, and he's always waiting right around the corner to just work his way back in. Because he likes being front and center. All right, but that's not what Christianity truly is. So, so deny yourself. That was the first step. What's the second step? Take up thy cross. All right, take up your cross. Now, you think about that, Jonathan. This would have been a vile, violently graphic picture for early Christians of a life of suffering. I mean, to take up your cross, for us, 
when we think of take up your cross, we think of Jesus, and we think of his sacrifice for us, and we think of love. They think of the Romans. Right. And those pieces of wood that people are hanging off of. Right. And their blood is draining out of them, and they're in torture and agony. Right. That's what they picture. So when Jesus said it to them, it's take up your cross. Take up your willingness to deal with and go through torture and agony. So they saw this life of suffering. Jesus used this picture to give full disclosure on what his footsteps might cost. Now, it doesn't. every one of us as Christians doesn't go through suffering and agony in that way. But that's the recipe. It's through difficulty that the footsteps of Jesus are accomplished. And there are several ver- words in the, in the New Testament, Jonathan, that describe the kinds of experiences a Christian is going to have. And these words were not... We could make an entire program out of these next six words and looking at the scriptures that they're used in. We're just going to touch on a few of, of, of scriptures that, that are attached to these words. But these words describe the footstep followers of Jesus and what their life is supposed to be. What's the first word? Persecution. Which means to pursue. Okay. When you are being persecuted, you are being chased, essentially. Now, chased for a negative reason. Somebody is trying to kind of chase you down, whether it's for just for ridicule or to actually cause, cause harm. What's next? Suffering. To undergo. To be affected. All right. To suffer really means to have an experience. But to be able to, to, to have that experience not just sort of pass over you, but have it take root in you and, and have um, a positive effect afterwards. What's next? Reproach. To defame, that is, rail at, chide, taunt. So to be reproached, to be chided, to be taunted, I mean, to be defamed. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants that. What's next? Tribulation. It's pressure, Rick. Our life experiences are going to bring pressure. What's next? Tribulation. Um, I'm sorry, temptation. Endeavor, scrutinize, entice, and discipline. So there's actually two words for temptation, two primary words for temptation in the New Testament. The first one means to, to entice to discipline. In other words, to go through something so you can learn from the difficulty of that something that you're going through. And the second word for temptation, what does that mean? A putting to proof, by implication, adversity. All right. You know, when they say the proof is in the pudding? <laughs> yeah. Okay. As long as it's chocolate pudding, I'm good. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in what comes out of the ingredients that you've mixed together. That's well, Rick, what our life's supposed to be. Go ahead. The list, these, these six things on this list, mm-hmm. do people that are going to church experience these things or are they even taught that these things are a part of a Christian walk or that it's even expected? You know, and, and I, I think that there's a lack. Uh, there, there's missing. Yeah. They're missing things. Yeah, and, and that really actually concerns me. When, me too. When you, when you think about Christianity without putting these things into the mix. And, and, and you, you look at these things and you say, this is really what it costs? And the answer is yes. How do we know? Because the scriptures are telling us that this is what it costs. So the Apostle Peter. Now we talked about Peter and denying Jesus in the last segment. Peter verifies the intensity of the Christian experience of taking up your cross in 1 Peter four, twelve to 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, 
as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So there's, there's two things that are happening in, in this particular part of the verse. First of all, he's saying, hey, look, should it be any kind of surprise at the fiery ordeals which are coming upon you? Do you think there's something strange about this? He's saying you should know that that's part of the contract. But he then talks about rejoicing. And so you've got this mixture of dealing with fiery trials and rejoicing. You've got this mixture of suffering for Christ and rejoicing with exaltation. Well, Rick, those evidences, if those experiences are coming to you in your life, you can say, the Lord is working in my life. Right. He's helping me to grow. This is proof positive. I'm on the right path. Right, right. Now, we have to be willing to, with open arms, accept those things. And that's hard to do. It be- is hard. Be- because, you know, you, you, oftentimes when we, get, we have trials, you know, we think, okay, what have I done wrong? Now, maybe we've done something wrong. <laughs> and you, yeah. can't, you, can't, you can't just rule that out. But you also can't rule out the idea, the thought, and the, the process that God is simply perhaps stretching you further than you've ever been stretched before. And are you willing to go through that stretching? You know, if you're trying to stretch your muscles, you can't do it without feeling some kind of pain. Oh, for sure. And if you work out a muscle, it's going to hurt, and it feels black and blue. And then you stretch it, and you're going, why am I causing myself more pain on top of the pain from working out the muscle? And the answer is, because it'll be stronger tomorrow. And that's the experiences, that, those are the experiences of our lives. Verse, uh, uh, verse 14 of First Peter four twelve to 16. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Okay, if you're reviled, that's one of those words that means to be uh, d- d- taunted, to be defamed. So he says, if you're reviled, not because of who you are, but for the name of Christ, you're blessed. And you think about that, it doesn't make sense, but it makes perfect sense. This is a test. This is only a test. <laughs> that's right. And this too shall pass. And it may not pass for this entire lifetime, but this lifetime is pretty short compared to eternity. Let's finish up verses 15 and 16. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. All right, so there's a contrast. Here's a comparing contrast after uh, the Apostle Peter talks about trials and difficulties and rejoicing under them. He says, okay, there's going to be suffering, but make sure the suffering comes to you not because you've done bad, not because you're a murderer, not because you're a thief, not because you're an evildoer, not because you're some meddler, but make sure your suffering becomes comes to you because you are a Christian and you are living a life that is different than everybody around you. You are standing up for something that is higher than everyone around you and you are willing to take the consequences of those things and and, and be blessed of God through Christ because of that. Trial and ordeal, but for the right things. To our live listeners right now, we'd love to hear your feedback, questions, or comments. Call us at 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. You can also leave us a voicemail 24-7 or leave us a 
comment at christianquestions.com. And, and Jonathan, another thing that's really important here is, you know, we've been really focusing on the price and the cost. And you've you got to dig down deep and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take everything you've got and you've got to be willing to go through the difficulties and live with trials and live with sufferings and all. Look, it's not all bad. Okay? It's not all bad. The pain and the challenge are balanced out through faith, through peace, and through God's love. See, there is a trade-off. And if we are willing to go through the difficulties, what sustains us is not because we're so strong, not because we're so great, not because we are so far above everyone else. It's, it's the faith in God through Christ. It's the peace of God that passes all understanding. Those are the things that actually sustain us through those difficulties of following in the footsteps of Jesus. Romans 5, 1 to 5, really, really helps us to see the good side of all of this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, okay pause right there for a second. Justified through faith, you now have peace with God. Understand that the world in which we live does not have peace with God right now. They do not. This world is contrary to God. We can have peace with God if we're justified by faith. That is a powerful change in, in, in the parameters of living your life. The world is groaning and travailing. Yes. Go ahead, let's finish that verse. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which he has given us. All right, so what this is saying is we've been given peace with God through Jesus, and we can rejoice in our sufferings. Now, doesn't, rejoicing doesn't mean you're happy and ecstatic and laughing and, and, and giggly through all of your sufferings. That's not what rejoicing is. Rejoicing is that calm, positive contentment that things are good because God has got them in control. That's what rejoicing is. And it, he says suffering produces perseverance and then character and hope. And hope is not disappointing because God has given us his spirit to show us all of this. So why do we suffer? Because it's fertile ground for strong and necessary growth. And Rick, we learn the best lessons of life through difficulty. And uh, our dear friend Mark always tells us to write down our important lessons and experiences that we need to look back on them and draw the strength and trust needed for the future experiences. And, and that's such a good idea. Write down those difficult things and write down what's happened and write down the intensity of the difficulty so you can see the intensity of the deliverance. And that's because we, we, we forget. And Jonathan, I want to make uh, an important point, I think, uh, about, about suffering. And, you know, sometimes we think, and, and, I, and I think about the, the example, we touched on it very quickly in the first hour, the example of the Pharisees. You know, they would, Jesus said, you know, you love to stand on the street corners when you're fasting, looking all miserable because you're hungry. And that's not what our suffering is supposed to be. We should be having those sufferings happening within us, but not necessarily wearing them on the outside, because we have that calm rejoicing about us. It's kind of like a gymnast. If you understand the incredible work that goes into the fluency of a gymnast's move, movements, 
I mean, they are fluid and they leap and they can they can contort their bodies and they exhibit strength that is just incomprehensible. But if you watch a gymnast and you get the camera and you move it up really close, most of the time when they're doing all of these things, they're shaking and they're in great pain. But you don't see that. What you see is the grace of the movement. You see, it's the same thing with the Christian. It is the grace of God that should be exuded through the pain and difficulty of, of going through the experience so the grace of God can show through us. That's a hard thing. So suffering doesn't mean that you're walking around saying, oh boy, am I suffering for Christ today. Look at me, world. Look at how difficult my life is. That's right. Pat me on the back because I'm a Christian and I'm suffering. Have the grace of God flow through you. What a, what a wonderful way to look at things. And when we have that, Jonathan, all this brings us into a new family arrangement. Romans eight fourteen to 18. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that, that Abba, Father, that's like crying Daddy. That is the closeness. That's the So p- personal. It is. And that's the peace with God that comes through faith and trust. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I considered that the suffering of this present time are not worthy worth comparing with the glory about to re- be revealed to us. So he's saying the suffering of this present time is not, does not hold a candle to the, the, the incredible value of blessing that's going to be revealed uh, through us in the future. This new family offers us to become joint heirs with Christ at the cost of suffering, but it's only for a short time. And Rick, it's to prove ourselves trustworthy. Like last week's episode, how do you know God can trust you? Right. To be an heir, to be given heirship? I know. What, what's, what? <laughs> I mean, you, you've got to prove yourself through, through the fire that you're loyal to him alone. And the other part of this, it's not just me and it's not just you. It is the suffering of the body of Christ. And we, through fellowship, through working together, through sharing those difficulties with one another, should be able to encourage and pick each other up. There's a great scripture, a very short scripture here, 1 Corinthians 12:26, that enhances that thought for us. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So am I willing to enter into your sufferings? And the next question is, are you willing to share your sufferings so I can enter in them, into them? So it's, it really is a working together to put things in perspective. So what's our footstep follower lesson number five in terms of following the footsteps of Jesus? Taking up our cross is the second essential quality needed to walk in Jesus' footsteps. For if we did indeed take up our cross, our hands and our heart will have no strength or focus left for our own interests. See, if you take up your cross, it's costly, it's heavy, and it requires all of your energy. And if you truly take up that cross, there's nothing left to do other things in life. And that, though it's difficult, is a beautiful experience by the grace of God. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject is, Is the Price of Christianity Too High? Coming up, deny yourself, take up your cross. Is it really worth it? 
Did I sign up for this? <laughs> That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today's episode is the price of Christianity too high. We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Out from the dark ages, errors from the past, and into the light of today, the original good news. Join us 24-7 at ChristianQuestions.com. And Jonathan, I just want to remark about the value of Seeker Rewind, the full edition. It is such a great, great tool. So many people use it. We get such great feedback from it. It takes what we talk about and puts it uh, into a PDF file format. You get an email uh, once a week where you can just click on the link and then download it or take a look at it. You can unsubscribe with the click of a button if, you, if, if it's not something that you want. But it's a free service, and you really want to avail yourself of a tool like that because it really helps to make it much more real, the idea, like what we're talking about today, the idea of living a life in, of sacrifice in the footsteps of Jesus is a hard thing. Why do we say that? Well, all the scriptures will be right there in front of you. Seeker Rewind, the full edition, try it. You'll like it. So, Jonathan, the, we, we've been talking about in the second hour, deny yourself as the first step, take up your cross as the second step, and the third step is what? Follow him. All right, so now we've got to, okay, follow him. Well, to where? Through what? Why? What is there? What does it mean to follow Jesus? First of all, where do you follow him to? Now, obviously, we had the picture of the cross and, and, and suffering and all of that, and we've really spent a lot of time talking about that. But the eventual end result of following Jesus is an eternal dwelling with the captain of our faith. And that's shown to us. Again, Jesus showed it to us in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Rick, why is it that most people that go to church aren't going to heaven? <laughs> they, they were not instructed on following Jesus's footsteps, but being on the earth will be absolutely wonderful, and sh they should n never be disappointed. Well, and and that's the thing. The purpose of this program tonight is to f is to lay out the true cost of attaining the incredible privilege that you just read about in John fourteen two and three. It is an incredible privilege. It is not. It is not a handout. It is not an entitlement. Because you you speak the name of Jesus, it is something that we have to put ourselves into a position of living every day of our lives. And when we fall down and fall out of it, we have to get up and get back into it. And it is very, very costly, but it's also very, very blessed. So that's the eventual end result. That's where we want to go as true Christians, is to follow Jesus through the sacrifice, through the suffering, and by God's grace to this wonderful glory, which I don't even have a... I can't even begin to fathom what it would even possibly potentially be like to be, even be at the door, for goodness sakes. You know, I, I, know. I, I don't Amazing. get it. It's, it's way beyond me. So that's the eventual to where. 
of, uh, of following in Jesus' footsteps. Through what? What do we follow in Jesus' footsteps through? Difficulty, Rick. But not without strength and support from above. That's it right. It is a hard thing. And I think uh, this next scripture, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, I think Kathy mentioned this in her comments in the first hour. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, now wait. We've been hammering the difficulty and the trial and even the trauma of following Jesus and how it's going to cost and how it's going to cost. And now you read this scripture and it says, well... Take my yoke upon you, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. How can that possibly be uh, in, in the same line as what we've been describing? I mean, you look at those two things, you say, wait a minute. They don't make sense. And it's like, do I choose one or do I choose the other? Because I'll take the easy yoke and the light burden, tell you that, <laughs> you know, if, I, if it was a choice between the two. But Jonathan, those are just simply two sides of the same issue. They're two different parts of the same issue. What he's saying, my yoke is easy. When, when you are in a yoke, when an animal is in a yoke, that yoke is so that they can do what? Work together. Right. Hold the, together. Uh, uh, an easy yoke is a yoke that is fitted to the particular animal, which means that it's put on the animal so it can do the most work possible with the least possible uh, strain and pain. Because you don't want the animal fighting against the yoke while it's trying to do the work. So when it says my yoke is easy, what it's saying is you've got a lot of work to do, but I have custom made the yoke for you. Your life experiences are yours, and I know what you can manage. I know what you can deal with. And so here, here's that custom made sacrificial life for you. Now go and, to work. And I will not give you more than you can, can't handle. Right. You know. That's amazing comfort, knowing the Lord knows us, our frame. Right. My burden is light. When you say, well, what do you mean his burden is light? The trials and tribulations of our life are not necessarily the burden of Christ. The burden of Christ is the call of the gospel. It's the good news of the kingdom. It's something that we should rejoice working towards. We've got to plow through the mud and the difficulty, but we're carrying this burden. So the, the, the trials are what we plow through, but what we carry is not over, over heavy. It is, it is privileged uh, property that we carry because it's the kingdom of God that we carry. So the two can actually work together. We can make it through the most difficult trials in life with our lives in Jesus' hands, with that yoke custom made for us to follow after him. Another scripture, Jonathan, uh, in terms of following after Jesus and, and the power that, uh, that we have working with us and for us, Romans eight thirty five to 39. This is, the, the, this is one of my favorite sets of scriptures. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So again, it's laying out the difficulties. It's saying now, it's talking about the love of Christ. Hardship, distress, persecution, 
Jesus went through those things. How about the Apostle Paul in writing this? <laughs> look, look at his life. Yeah, and yeah. You can you can track every one of these things. Yeah, yeah. You really can. It it, it becomes almost comical when you look at the, the way the Apostle Paul literally went through these things. For us, many times, it's, it's much more of a figurative going through them. But the Apostle Paul literally went through persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword, hardship and distress. You know, it says, for your sake, for the sake of Christ, we are kill, being killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. He, he ended his life being slaughtered as a sheep for the sake of Christ. So you're right. You look at his life and you see this, this glowing... Um, uh, resume of experience that helps us to understand what it means to walk in the footsteps uh, of uh, of Jesus. Uh, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. You don't just get through it. It's he says you're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. A casual follower, Jonathan, seeing all that stuff would say, "Forget it. That's not for me." And you know, you you mentioned that before. A lot of a lot of those of us who who call ourselves Christians, honestly and truly, if we saw this brand of Christianity presented to us on a regular basis, we'd say, you know what, I don't think I'm up for that. You know, I, there's there's too many other things that I that I, I like and that I love in life. Too many other things that are my own that are that are just too precious to me for me to let go of. I I don't think I would go down that road, and that's okay. Everybody is not called to this particular high calling right now. Salvation is for all men. That comes later for, for the everybody else. A casual father is n- follower is not going to be led as a sheep to the slaughter. This describes hardened, true, loyal, dedicated, all-in following. And so let's get uh, through verses 38 and 39 of this verse. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The followers of Jesus are are sort of separated out before you read verse 38. For those who still remain, you know, kind of reminds me of Gideon when he was calling uh, Israel to fight against the Midianites and, you know, the tests they had to go through. That's right. And he had, and they kept whittling down the right, army. Right. He started out with, uh, I don't know, 10,000 or something or even a larger number. I don't remember. He ended up with 300, this tiny little group. And this tiny little group pictures what you just read in verses 38 and 39. Neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That is the hardened soldier of Christ who is so utterly dedicated to the cause that nothing, nothing, nothing can get in their way. And, and Jonathan, just one, one side note, one side quick side story um, that really that I, I think about when I, when I read verses like this and about this dedication. You know, you know my son Tim is in the Coast Guard. Yes, I do. And uh, he does some pretty, pretty serious stuff there. And you know, when we went down to visit him uh, several weeks ago, he was showing me some of his gear. And, you know, he's he, he has the kind of a job where, you know, you're looking for terrorists, you're looking for uh, uh, nuclear devices, biological weapons, all these kinds of things. So you've got all this gear that you bring with you to sort of see what's ahead of you. You throw this little thing into the room and if, and if it glows a certain color, you know you better not go in there. 
you know? Wow. And, and so, I mean, and he's, he's going through this gear in his trunk and he's saying, this is for this and this is for that. And I'm looking at it saying, man, that's dangerous stuff. It's, it's, it, but you know, they're prepared. They're prepared for every step they take. And if they do what they're supposed to and they think and they follow the protocol, they're going to come home. Same thing with us. We have to be prepared, do what we're supposed to, follow the protocol, follow in the footsteps of our leader, and we are protected. And, you know, we're protected. Sometimes it might cost us our lives, but in that we are still protected because eternity is a whole lot longer and a whole lot better than what's here. So with that little sidestep example there, a true follower prepares to fight, to actually be engaged in the events, to lay everything on the line. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So it is a spiritual battle that we are fighting. Let's go one last time to why does the gate the emerging new Christianity because they bring up one final point here that's really, really important in understanding what we should be doing and what we should not be doing. The church somehow thinks in, in some quarters that it has the, the task of setting up the kingdom of God. It's Jesus who sets up his own kingdom. And we are the ones who inherit it. It's Jesus who ushers it in, not the other way around. We don't usher it. The kingdom of God is not something that's made with man's hands. We aren't building it. It's not something that, that uh, we have a hand in making because the Bible says we inherit that. So how do you inherit something if you're the one who builds it? And then that's kind of interesting because a lot, of, a lot of Christians look at our world today and we think, oh, you know, we've got to build the kingdom right now through our government. No, we don't. So that's, that's contrary to what the scriptures tell us. It's contrary. So very, very uh, revealing there. So, you know, we're, we're talking about following Jesus as the third step. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. To where? To heaven eventually. Through what? Through difficulty, through trial, through, through all kinds of stuff. Why? Why do we follow him through all of these things? Why? Because God's plan has always been for the blessing of his entire human creation. So it's not just about me. It's not selfish. It's about us. And when I say us, I don't just mean you and me and, and, and folks listening. I mean all mankind. Right. The big us. That's what we're talking about here. Galatians three twenty-eight and 29. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ... Then you are Abraham's descendant, heirs according to the promise. So, one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the most amazing things about being a true footstep follower of Christ is it is a great equalizer. It is the kind of thing that puts everybody on the same level, the same playing field, and it doesn't matter how great you were in your life before Christ. It does not matter. What matters is how humble you can be in your life of following Christ. It matters how much more forward can you move in the footsteps of Jesus and how can you encourage others to come along with you. That's what matters. And it's a we 
overcoming. That's what it really comes down to. It's not me. It's us. That's the important thing. And Rick, heirs according to the promise, the promise to Abraham, in thee and thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. They'll be as the stars of heaven and the sands which are on the seashore. Right. That's the promise that that's talking about specifically. Well, let's go to another scriptural promise, another another biblical prophecy to show us the why for, for, for true Christianity plowing through all the difficulty that they have to plow through. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will come forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is a prophecy that shows the world later on. This is a prophecy that shows the world after the time of trouble, after Armageddon, and once resurrection has begun to take place, and it shows the world under the jurisdiction of Christ and his true followers. You see, that's the, that's the point, Jonathan. We go through this as true followers of Christ so that we can become worthy tools in the hands of Jesus in the next age for the redemption of the rest of the world. We can be used to reconcile them back to God. What a beautiful thing. We have peace with God now. We want the world to have peace with God later. To do that, we have to be faithful by walking in Jesus' footsteps. What is our final footstep follower lesson? And that's lesson number six. To follow him is not a thought or a feeling or even an event. It is a way of life that encompasses all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it is fed by the grace of God. And I think this is one of those really important points. Following in Jesus' footsteps is not a feeling. It's not an event. It's not a one-time decision. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I accept Jesus into my life and I, I, I say that I'm a sinner. That's not what it is. That might be a great start. The feeling might be a great start. But what this is, it is a daily, everyday, moment-by-moment experience where we are willing to show ourselves to be humble, clay in the potter's hands, to be shaped and molded to whatever it is that he will need, to be willing to go through the difficulty, the trial, and the tribulation, and the suffering with grace and with strength and with the power of Jesus and God's Spirit working through us to be overcomers. That's what it means to be a true follower of Christ. And the end result is the blessing of all the world of mankind. What an opportunity. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed being with us tonight. We will be back again next week with yet another subject. But till then, is the price of Christianity for you right here, right now, is it something you are willing to pay? And if so, go to work and be blessed. For Jonathan Rigg and Christian Questions, until next week, Christianity, think about it.